John chapter two, John chapter two, John's gospel. If you're visiting with us, you need a Bible. There's a black Bible in the chair in front of you. You can pull that out, go to the back and find page 72 for John's gospel chapter two. John chapter two. This morning we're gonna study verses 12 through 25 the end of chapter 2 12 through 25 of John chapter 2 let me read and then we'll jump in after this he and his mother and brothers and his disciples went down to Capernaum and there they stayed a few days And the Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers seated. And making a whip of rope, he drove all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Stop doing these things. Stop making my father's house a house of market. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Therefore the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you prove that you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it. Therefore the Jews said, it took 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? He was speaking of the temple, his body. Therefore when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. And when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name seeing the signs which he was doing, but Jesus himself was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he had no need for anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. There's an old story of a father who took his son out and stood him on the railing of the back porch. He then went down, stood on the lawn, encouraged the little fellow to jump into his arms. I'll catch you, the father said, confidently. After a lot of coaxing, the little boy finally made the leap, and when he did, the father stepped back and let the child fall to the ground. He then picked up his son, dusted him off, and dried his tears. Let that be a lesson, he said sternly. Don't ever trust anyone. Nice father. Nice guy. (laughs) On a brighter side, I loved watching my grandson, Xander, uh, jumping into our daughter's arms, Chloe's arms, while in the pool. He would just fling himself on Chloe and on Jordan too, uh, completely entrusting himself to them even when they weren't even looking, he would just, here I come, ah! And we're like, ah! You know. 
When you entrust yourself to someone, entrusting it means to commit to another with confidence. Entrusting means you commit yourself to another with confidence. And that's how we should be with Jesus. As we come to these verses, in verse 12 through 25, the theme of John's gospel, come know Jesus, come believe Jesus, come trust Jesus, uh, come receive Jesus. Uh, today we'll see, come entrust yourself to Jesus. Come entrust yourself to Jesus. Uh, it's, it's positioned in the text in a negative way, I'm putting it in a positive way. And you'll see what I mean in just a moment. Come, entrust yourself to Jesus. Let me put it in a statement for you. Based on who Jesus is, not what he'll do for you, entrust yourself to him. Because if you entrust yourself to Jesus, he'll entrust himself to you. Based on who Jesus is, not what he's going to give you, not what he's going to do for you, not because he's going to give you your best life now. No. You entrust yourself to Jesus based on who he is. And if you entrust yourself to Jesus based on who he is, he'll entrust himself to you. Another way to put it, a longer statement. Since Jesus is the true temple, the true sacrifice, the word fulfiller, and the heart knower, we should entrust ourselves to him, and as we do, he will entrust himself to us with love and grace. That's who he is. That's what will unfold for us in the text. Remember, John's gonna tell you who Jesus is and why it should matter to you. It's not, well, what does this do for my life, the Bible? You're looking at the Bible all wrong. This is what God has done. How does your life fit into that? Why does it matter who Jesus is? He's the true temple, the true sacrifice, the word fulfiller. He's the heart knower. You should entrust yourself to him. And as you do, he'll entrust himself to you with love and with grace. See, our whole lives uh, must be Jesus-centered, which means you center upon the cross, his resurrection, and the significance of that work in your life. Our whole lives must be Jesus-centered, which centers upon the cross, his resurrection, and the significance of that work in our lives. Jesus was passionate for himself. We should be passionate for our Jesus. Jesus was passionate for the worship of God. We should be passionate for the worship of God. You know, it's interesting, the contrast that you see from chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, and then chapter 2, verse 12 through 25. 
1 through 11 is a, a celebratory bridegroom. Here, Jesus is shamed. And, and yet, in both cases, he was not understood. And in both cases, he was not honored the way he should be. Except you have a little glimmer of hope with the disciples in verse 11. Which we saw that last week. They believed in him. Jesus is our true Passover lamb, the true sacrifice, and Jesus is the true temple of God. Look, we cannot be made right with God or be reconciled to God or dwell with God except through Jesus. Only in him can that happen. You want to be made right with God? You want to be reconciled with God? You want to dwell with God? You can only have it through Jesus. It's no other way. It's not through some new age philosophy. It's not through some saint or some person guru. It's only through Jesus. And if you receive this gospel truth, you can dwell with God. Only in Jesus do we have a personal fellowship and relationship dwelling with God. And it's a real, personal, relational, intimate relationship with God, with his people. It's real. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, a Jesus follower, then you need to become a Jesus follower to come to a place where you say, Jesus, I believe you died for my sin and you're the only way I can be made right with God. I repent. I trust in you, Jesus. And he'll save you. You have a relationship with God only through Jesus. There is no other way. And see, it's not about a place of worship either. It's not about a place of worship, but who? It's not about where, but who? Worship is defined in and through Jesus, who is God's temple. Jesus defines that. It's not about where you worship. It's not even about the day. It's who. If you want to find God, it can only be found in the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. So entrust yourself to Jesus because of who he is. Not what he's going to do for you. Okay. Who is Jesus? Remember, John's going to tell you who Jesus is and why it matters. Who is Jesus? These first two are in verses 12 through 21. Number one, Jesus is the true temple. He's your only access to God. Number two, Jesus is the true sacrifice. He's your only sacrifice for sin. He's the true temple. He's the true sacrifice. True temple. He's your only sacrifice, excuse me, he's your only access to God, the true sacrifice. He's your only sacrifice for sin. There's no one else. There's nothing else. Let's walk through and see how this unfolds for us. 12, it's like a connecting statement between verse 11 and 13, but John gives no indication of the timing of the events because he says just after this, 
he and his brothers, his mother, his disciples, they went down to Capernaum. And, and these brothers are Jesus' half-brothers, the children of Joseph and Mary. They descended down from Cana into the city of Capernaum. It became kind of home for Jesus. Verse 13. And the Passover of the Jews was near. The Passover, this is a feast which celebrated Yahweh's great deliverance of his people from Egypt, Exodus 12. Every year they would celebrate this. And it's the Passover of the Jews that is the residence of Judea. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem's on a hill. And now notice he begins to cleanse the temple and, and before we jump into this cleansing of the temple, we need to make something clear. Or I do. I, as well as others, am under the persuasion that the gospel writers record two cleansings. The synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record one uh, uh, cleansing that happened at the end of Jesus' ministry. This one in John's gospel happened in the beginning. There's two cleansings of the temple. And at the outset, this would bring a question of his authority to do such an action. And the second time, this is where uh, what happens in the synoptics in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that would have been the last straw for them. But here, the first cleansing, which happened two years before, two years before the second cleansing that's recorded in Matthew and Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel, this first cleansing is going to be about authority and the very presence of who's there in the temple. You'll see that unfold. Notice what happens. Verse 14. He found in the temple those who were selling oxen, sheep, and doves. Now, the word temple here means the whole temple precinct with its buildings. Specifically, they're, they're in the court of the Gentiles. Uh, yet, Jesus would use a different term for temple. When he would use the term temple, he would use the other word for temple, which is not us, which is used to denote God's dwelling place. So it was in this court of the Gentiles where they were conducting their quote-unquote business of the Jewish sacrificial religion. All three animals, oxen, sheep, and doves, were used in the sacrificial worship. Animals were sold here out of convenience. So you didn't have to bring your animal. You just buy it there. Notice the end of verse 14. And the money changers receded. The temple tax had to be paid. And it was paid in that Tyrrhenian coinage because of its high purity of silver. And obviously they were charging a high price to exchange the money. But you're going to notice something. The emphasis in this cleansing was not the robbery of these people. It was their presence. It became a house of business. They weren't supposed to be there. Look what happens, verse 15. Making a, says New American Standard, whip, excuse me, scourge of cords, which is literally a whip of rope. He drove them all away. Not just the animals, but the people. One writer says it was forceful but not cruel. Here you see just righteous anger from Jesus. Drove out all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers, overturned their tables. 
Now, John is showing us the truth here. The lamb drove out these sacrificial animals because he replaces them. Their blood was inadequate. Only his blood would be sufficient and adequate to dwell with God. They were insufficient. See, Jesus' concern was their location in this transaction. They shouldn't even be there. They had no business being there, no pun intended. But even greater, it was the sacrificial failure of the oxen, sheep, and doves. Notice how Jesus' passion for truth, for righteousness, purity, presence, grace, love. It had instead become a place of prayer and reflection and worship and brokenness, contrition, adoring God, petitioning God, worshiping Him from the heart, being made right with God, the dwelling with God, it was a house of business. They had no business being there. Look at verse 16. And those were selling the doves, and it's probably best to see that Jesus spoke these words not just directed to the dove sellers, but simultaneously with the act of Him driving them out. He said, get these things out of here. Stop abusing my father's house. Take careful notice of the word house. He did not object to their dishonest gain, though that was happening, because that comes up in the synoptic gospels. Uh, You've made it into a house of robbery. That's the synoptics. Here, He doesn't say that. You've made it to a house of business. It was their presence. It was my father's house. And guess what? I am the true temple. I'm the true dwelling of God. It's me. They made it into a house of business, not a house of dwelling. Verse 17. His disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. This is a quote from Psalm 69, verse 9. We're going to talk more about this whole aspect in just a moment. But you're going to see here what's going to unfold for us is if you want to understand the actions of Jesus, you must interpret them through the grid of Scripture. God's Word and God's Word are both authoritative and unified. Why this psalm? In Psalm 69, people were reviling God by their worship. The psalmist... He publicly protested this, but it caused him to be reviled by them too. So this is actually a prophecy of the greater David to come. Jesus would fulfill this psalm facing shame, ultimately uh, facing the shame of the cross. So here you see Jesus held high pure worship of God and the way to have that relationship with him, the person who's the focal point of that relationship between God and man, it was the true temple. It's found in him, in Jesus. Look at how the Jews respond. Look at verse 18. Therefore the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you prove? Deknumai, which means to prove something. What sign do you prove to us? Interesting, Psalm 69 uh, 
they're the ones who reviled God and will bring shame upon Jesus. And here this is what, exactly what they're doing. And by the way, when it says the Jews, it means the representatives of Judaism. Those are the Sanhedrin. What sign do you prove to us that you do these things? They're the temple authority. So what higher authority do you claim? What are your credentials? What right do you have to do this? And yet, in this very question, they're so obtuse. In this way, first, they didn't know self-examination regarding Jesus' temple cleansing. Hey, maybe it's justified. You ever thought about that? Which showed they were more concerned with authority. They were more concerned about authority than worship. They were more concerned about their authority and their place of authority than worshiping God. But something else, that's a stupid question to ask. I mean, think about it. Does God domesticate himself in this way to humans? Well, yeah, I'm going to show you here. I'll do a little thing for you. What kind of God does that? God proves himself to people like that? If, if that's the case, then that God is not worthy of worship. God doesn't prove himself to humans in that way. So we saying holy, holy, holy. You don't domesticate God like that. They should have understood scripture and seen that Jesus' very temple cleansing was the sign. You want a sign? There it is. You want a sign? There it is. He was fulfilling the word. It's, it's, he was doing it right there. Notice how Jesus answered. He shoots this off. You want proof of my authority? Here you go. Destroy this temple, not us. Dwelling of God, that's the word he uses. And in three days I'll raise it. You want proof? Here's your proof. Not only is this the proof of his authority, it was actually telling them the sign that will be given. Wait, well, what sign? Wait, he's going to tell them the sign. Wait, I thought the other was the sign. No, 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 I'm going I'm to, you want a sign? You want proof of my authority? You want a proof of my identity? I'm going to give it to you. Here's the sign. You want the sign? The sign is the cross. His, his death and resurrection. There's the sign. Destroy my body, and in three days he'll be raised. Notice what he's saying. My body, which John will tell us from verse 21, he was speaking of the temple, his body. I'm the proof and identity of who this person is. I'm the dwelling of God, Jesus is saying. It's in me. The proof of his identity and authority is by his death and resurrection. for his death and resurrection is the ultimate temple cleansing, isn't it? He's the replacement of this temple. Or rather, this temple is a type of what was to come in Christ. When you look at the tabernacle in the Old Testament and the temple in the Old Testament, that was where God would dwell, but that was a type of what was to come in Messiah and Messiah, he's the antitype. He's the fulfillment. It's written, in, it's, it's, it's all about him. How can you dwell with God? It's through Jesus. He's the true temple. 
you know, you think about this statement. Destroy this temple. Uh, We're going to talk about their response. It took 46 years to build this temple. This is a big thing for Jesus to say, especially given the political nature of the times. I mean, things were pretty shaky with, with everything, with the Jews and the Romans and everything. What kind of Messiah were the Jews looking for? They wanted a Messiah to come and conquer the Romans, kill all the Romans, kill all the Gentiles. Jews reign forever. Amen. That's what they wanted. So Jesus making this statement are you, are you crazy? This is like, you're, you're, you're bringing about a major political crisis here with these Jews. That's the point. They thought they needed some great Messiah who was gonna deliver them from the Romans. Jesus was trying to show them, if you wanna dwell with God, it's wrapped up in me. I'm the true temple. I'm the true sacrifice. Well, their response it took 46 years to build this temple. You know, you, 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 you think about people. It just goes right over their heads. Their obtuse nature shine like the sun. Their focus is purely natural material. Reconstruction of this temple began around 20 B.C., and ended around 27, 28 AD. Actually, it was a few years before it was destroyed. That's when it actually was totally finished. Totally missed it. And notice what John does, the writer, the evangelist, verse 21. He was speaking of the temple of his body. The temple, which is his body. Jesus spoke about himself, his body as the true temple, not this one that was becoming obsolete. God fully manifests the Father. God, the God-man fully manifests the Father. He's the focal point of God's manifestation. Jesus is the living abode of God on earth. He's the antitype of the temple, or the tabernacle. It's himself. He's the center of the true worship of God, He's the better and final temple. He cleansed it. He replaced it. He's the true temple. He's the true sacrifice. It's all wrapped up in him. That's why you should entrust yourself to Jesus. He's the true temple. He's your only access to God. He's the true sacrifice. He's your only sacrifice for your sins. And notice, nothing more is said here about the Jews. So in all actuality, Jesus lost this conflict. He was shamed. But that's the point. He would be shamed ultimately at the cross to bring us to God. So Jesus is the true temple. Uh, Jesus is the true sacrifice. Number three, we, we actually kind of talked about this already in verse 17. Uh, Jesus is the word fulfiller. He fulfills the word. You see that in verse 22 and even again verse 17. Jesus is the word fulfiller. Uh, Entrusting yourself to him is entrusting yourself to the word. He's the word fulfiller. 
Notice verse 22. Therefore, when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this. After his resurrection, when, when his disciples understood what Jesus was saying here, when that final sign was displayed, then all of Jesus' words and deeds, they finally clicked. It's like they came together. I thought about Nancy Parks. Remember Nancy Parks? She would go like this. Oh, I get it. With her raspy voice. Oh, I get it. That's just what the disciples would do. Oh, now we get it. Yeah. Really? And you're, of course, you're not anything like the disciples, are you? But notice something. The end here, verse 22. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. They believed the scripture and the word Jesus spoke. Notice this. To believe God's word is to believe God's word. You get it? To believe God's word, written word, is to believe God's word, the living word. They go together. If you deny the written word, you're denying the living word. If you distrust the written word, then you distrust the living word. If you entrust yourself to the word, you're entrusting yourself to the living word. The disciples, one writer says, would come to see as authoritative and complementary the word of God and the word of God. Remember, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. If we entrust ourselves to scripture, we're entrusting ourselves to Jesus. If you entrust yourself to Jesus, you're entrusting himself to his word. That's what the disciples would do. You see the little glimmers of hope here. Verse 11 from last week. Here, verse 22. Little glimmers of hope, how the disciples responded. So let this this encourage you to get into God's word so that you will know the word. For Jesus is the fulfillment of the word. It's wrapped up in him. Oh, how we should be in God's word as his people. So we engulf ourselves in scripture. Jesus is the focal point of God's revelation. He's the true and complete dwelling place of God. He fulfills the word because he is the word. It's why you should entrust yourself to him. The true temple the true sacrifice, the word fulfiller. And number four, he's the heart knower. He knows your heart, 23 through 25. Again, John's telling you, this is who Jesus is. And this is why it should matter to you. This is who Jesus is. This is why it should matter to you. Jesus is the heart knower. He knows the deepest, deepest recesses of everyone's heart. He receives those who truly receive him. Back from John chapter one. So make him the center of your life and trust yourself to Jesus. 
Now I'm putting this in the positive spin. Notice 23 through 25 is in the negative. 23. And when he was in Jerusalem, at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name. Oh, cool. All these people believe in his name. Yay. That's great, right? Seeing the signs that he was doing, right? This is good, right? Right? Sort of, maybe. Well, no. No, not, not really. Obviously, Jesus did more signs than the ones John recorded in the gospel. He says that. Yet, what these people saw did not translate into understanding what they saw. What these people saw did not translate into understanding what they saw. Why? Their faith was superficial. They believed because of what Jesus could do or would do for them. They had surface faith. Look at what happens. Seeing his signs as he was doing, verse 24, but Jesus himself was not entrusting himself to them. That word entrusting is the same Greek word, pastuo. We get the word believe. And sometimes you can translate it as entrusting. Uh, remember, entrusting. It means, I have it written down, to commit to another with confidence. Interesting. They were believing in Jesus, but Jesus wasn't believing them. Do you see that? Jesus didn't, Jesus knew them, He knew them perfectly. One writer puts it like this, listen. Creation has forgotten the creator, but the creator has not forgotten his creation. <laughs> That's funny. He was on to them. Look, you can't trick Jesus by flattery. You can't entice Jesus by swearing to, oh, I, I swear if you get me out of this, I'm gonna, I'm gonna live for you. You can't catch him off guard because of some kind of ignorant innocence. You're dealing with God. He knows all men. He knows your heart right now. He knows my heart. Jesus himself was not entrusting himself to them. Why? For he knew all men. This tells us something. A distortion of Jesus could not be the object of their faith. A distortion of Jesus cannot be the object of your faith. Jesus does stuff for me. Jesus is gonna do things for me. That's a pretty superficial faith. This tells us something about true discipleship. Correct belief in Jesus displays true discipleship in Jesus and true discipleship of Jesus has correct belief about Jesus. You're gonna see that in this gospel where these people believe
believe in Jesus. Oh, really? Or they will come running after Jesus and say, Jesus, where have you been? We've been looking all over for you. And he says, the reason why you're looking for me is because you want your tummies filled. That's in John chapter six. That's superficial faith. So all you gotta do is take your remote control and turn on TBN and there it is right there. They throw out you, out to you, superficial faith. They throw out to you, this is what Jesus is gonna do for you. No. That's not how Jesus works. Look at the next part, verse 25. And because he had no need for anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. No need anybody to bear witness to testify. No one tells Jesus about humanity because he already knows humanity. Jeremiah 17.10, God searches and examines the heart and mind. Why? Because Jesus is the God-man. He's the creator. Jesus has supernatural knowledge of humans because he is God. Now I'm putting the positive spin on it. As we entrust ourselves to Jesus because of who he is, he entrusts himself to us. Entrust yourself to Jesus because of who he is. Not what he's going to do for you. Jesus knows our hearts right now. He knows we need grace. And he wants us to understand it's not about the place of worship, the where, it's about who. Worship is defined in and through Jesus who is God's true temple, God's true sacrifice, the one who fulfills the word, the one who knows our hearts. If you want to find God, it will only be found in the God-man. Jesus is the true temple. Jesus is the true sacrifice. He is the word fulfiller, the heart knower, so we should entrust ourselves to him. As we do, he'll entrust himself to us with love and grace. See, that's the, I put that, verse 23 to 25, in a positive way because 23 to 25 is actually a negative. If you entrust yourself, entrust yourself to Jesus because of what he's gonna do, he's not gonna entrust himself to you. That's the flip end of this. Our whole lives must be centered upon Jesus. Which means you center on the cross, his resurrection, and the significance of that work in your life. So, based on who Jesus is, not what he'll do for you. Give me this, give me that. Do this for me, do this for me. No. Based on who Jesus is, entrust yourself to him. And if you entrust yourself to him, he'll entrust himself to you. Let's take a moment and pray. Lord Jesus, we take seriously who you are. And thank you for your love and grace and your mercy. We 
and trust ourselves to you. Not because you'll heal us from cancer. Not because you'll stop war. Not because you'll give us a job. Not because you'll give us a family. Not because you'll keep us from sickness. But because of who you are. Uh, Jesus, help us. Because our culture shouts this to us that we're supposed to have these things. And you should be the great genie to give that to us. No, remind us of your grace. You're gracious and merciful and kind. You're the only way by which we can have dwelling with God. You're the only sacrifice for sins. You're the one who fulfills the word. You know our hearts. You know our hearts even now. We take that seriously. Thank you for being so gracious to us, Jesus. Please give us grace to keep entrusting ourselves to your word, which is entrusting ourselves to you. I encourage you in these few moments, if you would, take this time and fill your mind with truth. Fill your mind with scripture, with God's word. You know, we'll take that few moments, after a few moments, we'll pray, we'll sing, we'll pray. We do that, but this is um, a special time for you between you and the Lord to reflect upon the things that God has said as we sang, speak, O Lord. He has spoken. So let the word Fill your mind at this time. Would you please do that now?